0: Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. And with me today is Dr. Jonathan Fernhaber. We're going to be talking about skin cancer, the primary care approach to it, things like basal cell cancer, squamous cell, a little bit on malignant melanoma. And uh, Dr. Fernhaber actually is very qualified to talk about this. He's written articles on it, and probably if you read An American Family Physician, he's written articles in there as well. And I think your background, obviously, is as in primary care, but what was your interest in skin cancer? What got you excited about looking into it more?
1: More that we end up seeing uh, quite a few skin cancers at our primary care clinic in uh, a residency program in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, certainly eastern North Carolina is no uh, stranger to the sun, and we tend to see a lot of uh, non-melanoma skin cancers, and I do a lot of the procedures in our residency program, so uh, certainly had to get up to speed with uh, the proper care.
0: Jonathan is based at East Carolina University and um, I am familiar with it only through my son who played baseball down there uh, many, many summers and in that hot sun, even even if you try to protect yourself, you still have a lot of exposure there and there's, there's concerns. I want to ask you a question right off the top because I know a lot of The general public is concerned about this, but I'm sure many primary care docs as well. Is there enough of a change in the atmosphere that we're seeing increases in the amount of skin cancer perhaps more than 20, 30 years ago? Is it our lifestyle? What's going on? It's hard to say because
1: uh, truly the incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer is increasing and has has been increasing over the past couple of decades. And no one really is certain if that's changes in the atmosphere, that we're seeing more UV light penetration, or if people are uh, more adopting the, the quote-unquote healthy tan type of lifestyle, um, or if it's just that we're moving to the coast more and spending time at the beach. Um, but, but certainly the incidence of, of non-melanoma skin cancer is increasing, and there may be just an element of, uh, of better recognition. Perhaps people are living longer to uh, actually develop the skin cancers and have them uh, diagnosed and treated.
0: I'm gathering the most common form you see is basal cell because it's the most common form of skin cancer. Is that what you come across the most?
1: Hands down. Yeah, we, we uh, do see some squamous cell carcinomas, but uh, uh, by and large what we're seeing and taking care of uh, day by day are, are the basal cells.
0: So when we get people in the primary care office, obviously they come in and they say, oh, this little bump's here, that one's there. And obviously you could refer to a dermatologist, and certainly in some cases, in many cases you may want to. But when you're looking for basal cell, what are those specific characteristics you're looking for? I know radio, it's a little hard to describe without pictures, but what are those types of things you're looking for?
1: It is. Well, all the skin cancers and and a lot of skin lesions have their very characteristic descriptions, And uh, the the most common basal cell carcinoma subtype you see is the nodular basal cells, which are are classically described as a pearly papule. And if you think about basal cells not having a whole lot of supporting structure, uh, they they involute fairly quickly, but they um, look like little pearly papules on a, a little bit of an erythematous base, a lot of times some superficial telangiectasias on the surface. Um, And that's the most common type that you see. You certainly can see the superficial basal cells, which are more like little scaly plaque. Uh, Those sometimes get mistaken for eczema or for psoriasis. Uh, The pigmented basal cells are even less common, and those more commonly get mistaken for melanomas. Uh, Squamous cell carcinomas, uh, if you think of them being a a keratinized lesion, they're typically hard, crusty, with uh, a lot of times a central ulceration. Really, the, the big thing is having a high index of suspicion and, and a low threshold for, for doing a biopsy.
0: And when you see one and you decide, I'm going to do a biopsy here, what types of biopsies do you recommend? And can most family docs do it in their office? Oh,
1: absolutely. And most of them we do it at point of care as opposed to referring on to a procedures clinic. So we will do uh, shave biopsies for lesions that are raised uh, and uh, a simple punch biopsy up to three to four millimeters you can do without actually closing that. Cosmetic result is better if you leave that open and just let it heal by secondary intention. And um, that you can do a, a quick anesthesia with uh, less than a cc of lidocaine and drop a quick punch biopsy and use uh, dry DrySol or similar for, uh, uh, for hemostasis and be done in just a couple of minutes. And we have our nurses trained um, to the extent that we can walk out of the exam room and say, hey, I need to do a quick shave and go see another patient. And by the time we get back, everything's sitting on the tray ready to go.
0: When you talk about the superficial basal cell carcinoma, they get that red, scaly plaque. You get the raised pearly-white borders, like you're saying. There are other things that look like it, too, though, right? I mean, other types of lesions that that may uh, confuse the primary care, Doc?
1: Most certainly. And, and the nodular basal cells are, are the most common ones, and I, th- I think those are really the easiest to identify. Uh, they tend to have little, again, the pearly borders, uh, a lot of times little raised border with some central clearing. Um, but, but certainly the uh, superficial basal cells being scaly and plaque-like can be mistaken for all sorts of things. Uh, Bowen disease, which is squamous cell carcinoma in situ, uh, can sometimes be mistaken as a uh, superficial basal cell. And, uh, again, eczema, sometimes they're uh, sent over to evaluate that this might be tinea and people have been putting antifungal creams on them. Those tend to be the, the most difficult ones to uh, to really distinguish without actually having a biopsy in hand.
0: Tell us a little bit about actinic keratosis because that's also something pretty common, especially with sun exposure.
1: They certainly are, and that's really thought to be the precursor to the vast majority of squamous cell carcinomas. And technically, a an actinic keratosis is actually a neoplastic transformation. It's just that it's not until that neoplastic transformation reaches the dermis that it's considered a squamous cell carcinoma, and prior to that, it's still considered actinic keratosis. A lot of those will spontaneously resolve after the course of 9 to 12 months, but because they're considered precancerous, uh, we typically treat those. Cryotherapy is the, uh, the quickest and, and most efficient way to take care of them.
0: Do some people use, uh, like they cauterize them as well? Is that another option?
1: We generally don't cauterize uh, actinic keratosis. It tends to cause more scarring and more damage than is really necessary. Uh, because they're so superficial, cryotherapy tends to work really well. For someone who has more widespread actinic damage and actinic keratosis, such as on the scalp, uh, 5-fluorouracil, Cream, which is uh, the brand name, is Epidex, uh can be used, but that tends to cause a lot of crusting, and uh, it's really not a real pleasant experience for patients. But it is effective.
0: What about keratoacanthoma?
1: The keratoacanthomas are really interesting because uh, they're they're one of those that um, it's, it's they're fairly easy to diagnose by sight, and you have a very good idea that that's what it is. I always think of like a, uh, a papule, and, and you're thinking that it looks like a squamous cell carcinoma with a plug or a little volcano of uh, keratin in the center. Um, they're most commonly mistaken for squamous cell carcinoma, even though they are benign. Um, Typically, we go ahead and excise those because there is a possibility that there's a squamous cell underlying it. But um, generally, those are ones that uh, are, are fairly easy visual diagnosis.
0: You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Fernhaber. He is East Carolina University. Brody School of Medicine is where he's based. He has an interest in skin cancer and primary care approach, and clearly in our offices we see many of these cases people come to us first. What I always find interesting is the United States Preventive Services Task Force really says there's insufficient evidence to recommend for or against screening the whole body for skin cancer. You know, it's such an important thing. What, what do you think the reasoning was behind that recommendation?
1: Well, really, it's it, the USPSTF. And, and when I think about their recommendations, they are incredibly evidence-based. And, and if there is not uh, not just one, but if there's not a, a whole host of randomized controlled trials that uh, really prove that uh, whole body uh, examination and skin cancer screening in this example uh, is, is definitely beneficial then they don't really have the evidence to make a recommendation. Certainly their recommendations are in contrast to the American Cancer Society that recommends uh, fairly frequent annual uh, skin evaluations and recommends that patients actually do a monthly skin evaluation. Um, And and that's not an unreasonable thing. You figure that uh, having someone uh, slip off their shirt and take a look over their back in their uh, their prominently sun-exposed areas for skin lesions is not an unreasonable thing. It's, it's a fairly low-risk uh, maneuver, fairly quick and easy to do, and uh, I think also lets patients know that we take the, the risk of skin cancer seriously and want to make sure that they're, uh, they're adequately evaluated.
0: Of course, one of the major concerns we all have is malignant melanoma, and I did want to touch on it just for a few moments with you. And, and is the, this also is sun-related, or is this something where there could be genetic? What's the, um, I guess, the etiology the leading risk factors for malignant melanoma?
1: So the answer is, is yes to, the, to all of the above. Uh, certainly, in people who have uh, extensive sun exposure, uh, the risk of melanoma increases. But uh, there's certainly a genetic component as well. And folks who have uh, inadequate, um, basically DNA repair mechanism, they're at greater risk for melanoma. Those who have uh, who tan poorly, so someone who's fair-complected or certainly redheads, uh, have a greater risk. But sun exposure is certainly at the uh, high on the list of risk factors. Um, when we see those in clinic or we have a suspicion uh, that we're looking at a melanoma, probably the most critical thing is is doing a full thickness biopsy. And when we're suspicious of a basal cell or we're suspicious that it's a squamous cell, doing a shave is is a reasonable maneuver. Uh, certainly if there's a pigmented lesion and you have any suspicion whatsoever, uh, remembering that, that the depth of the lesion is really the critical point in determining uh, the, the risk and the, the concern for that malignant melanoma, um, anything that destroys the depth uh, gauging uh, it really destroys the, uh, the diagnostic ability of the pathologist. So making certain that a full thickness biopsy is done is, is really critical.
0: So sometimes you may have a patient where a dermatologist does the biopsy, then the report will come back that it may be pre-melanoma or, pre-melanoma or at least some sort of dysplastic change. They then will go back and, and, and take the entire area and a larger border. Is that what they usually do?
1: Right, and, and we do, uh, certainly for pigmented lesions, um, we're, and I think all of us are comfortable doing uh, a punch biopsy. Um, for a smaller lesion, sometimes we'll do a, a punch that, that excises the entire lesion or even do an excisional biopsy of a, uh, of a suspicious lesion. Uh, and then if the borders need to be expanded from there, we can refer on for that. But uh, we have a pretty low threshold for punching out um, a pigmented lesion or at least taking a, a piece of it to send on to pathology.
0: And I would think pathology, at least my experience is, I wouldn't say they overcall it, but I think they're very aggressive in calling it because it's one of those things I think you don't want to miss, right?
1: Right. And in a lot of cases, when it's first diagnosed, um, melanomas have already metastasized. So uh, early diagnosis is really a key.
0: Um, we talk about the different forms of skin cancer and different approaches. Do you think we're making a difference? I mean, you know, you obviously have taken an interest and you're working uh, to try to educate other physicians with your articles and and also probably in your residency program and with your own patients. Are we making a difference with education? I hope so.
1: And and when you look at, at basal cell carcinomas and say what's the you know the overall risk of those to someone's life, it's it's honestly not that much. Um, they can cause local destruction, but they they tend not to metastasize because they really require supporting stroma to, to continue to grow. So they, they don't do a good job of metastasizing. Even the, the metastatic risk of the squamous cell carcinoma is relatively low. It's under 10%. So when we think about, is this something that, that's really going to impact someone's life, it's really more local destruction and the you know, more the mental thing of having a, a skin cancer on your body. But... Um, even if, if we you know, say that there's not a, a great reduction in morbidity and mortality by treating them, um, nonetheless, I think the education has been useful because patients are... Uh, now we, we see that uh, even in the Carolinas, uh, which tends to be a, uh, a sun-worshiping part of the country, uh, the, the concept of a healthy tan is starting to slowly fade and people are uh, doing a better job of using uh, sun protection and, and uh, sunscreens even if they're out at
0: the beach. I mean, lately, I would think the shark worries are greater than the skin cancer in some extent, right?
1: Yeah, we were actually at the beach a, uh, uh, last weekend, and normally it is completely full of people, and there are four or five people in the water as far as you could see. So. Um, yeah, the, the shark
0: concerns have really got people going way more than the sun recently. Yeah, but, of course, we can't forget the sun. And another thing I wanted to bring up, which I know early on in my medical career, I kind of was stunned when I was in medical school I never thought about it, was the fact that we get so much sun exposure in the car, so much sun exposure during the winter. A lot of patients aren't aware of that. They just think of, I'm going to lather up when I go to the beach and put the SPF on or whatever, but they're not thinking about it all year long.
1: No, and, and, and car windows don't do a very good job of blocking UV rays. And as a matter of fact, clothes don't either. Um, a lot of times a, a thin cotton T-shirt is, is really not much better than not wearing anything at all. And so you can certainly get burnt through clothing. Uh, there are some clothing um, manufacturers that have uh, shirts and such that are, are actually have a an SPF that is built into them, and they're, they're better at blocking UV radiation. But you can certainly get burnt through clothing. You can get burnt through car windows. And... Um, in the wintertime in particular, especially if you're living someplace where there's, uh, where there's snow on the ground and uh, you end up with a lot of reflective uh, UV radiation, you can end up with some pretty nasty sunburns even uh, in the winter
0: months. I wanted to talk to you in the last minute or so we have of the recurrence rate, and it doesn't have to be exact percentage, but basal cell, squamous cell, and, and melanoma. Um, w- how often do we see these things repeating in, in the different uh, areas of skin cancer?
1: Basal cell carcinomas, depending on the method of excision or the method of treatment, uh, have a variable recurrence rate. It's typically under 20% over the course of five years or more. Uh, Depending on how they're treated, if they're completely excised, especially if if it's done with Mohs surgical technique, uh, where uh, basically the entire lesion is removed and and confirmed histologically that it's out before uh, the the, uh, defect is closed, that recurrence rate at five years is in the 5% range or lower. Uh, if they're treated with simple excision, it's a couple percentage points higher. If you stretch and do, say, electrodesiccation and curatage, which is still a very reasonable uh, method to treat a basal cell carcinoma, that recurrence rate may approach 10% over the course of five years. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma, depending on the location and size, may have a slightly higher uh, recurrence rate, but a lot of it depends on the size of the lesion, the uh, histologic characteristics. Uh, if the patient is immunosuppressed, if they have... Uh, Um, you know, other medications that that may cause immunosuppression if it's not an intrinsic immunosuppression. All those are factors that will influence their risk of recurrence.
0: And the malignant melanoma, is that something where you get one and then you're looking throughout the body? Because I would assume you'd excise that area if you'd want to get it all at that point.
1: Right. And lifetime risk of melanoma goes up sharply uh, of recurrence after someone's had a single lesion. And um, the tough thing is with those is that uh, they may be metastatic by the time they're diagnosed and those metastases may not be obvious until after someone's had treatment. So uh, aggressive treatment, even for uh, fairly small melanomas, is, is really the norm, uh, both surgical excision and with uh, wide margins, plus also uh, lymph node dissection,
0: and, uh, and then chemotherapy following. Jonathan Fernhaber, I want to thank you for joining us on Primary Care today on Reach MD. We run out of time, but I really appreciate your taking the time to join us. It's been a pleasure. It's nice talking with you. This is Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more on the series. Thank you very much for listening.